We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large. Join us on Monday at 2 p.m. on WBAI. And it is 7 p.m. The previous program, a special on the Middle East conflict, came to you live. Portions on recording here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming at WBAI.org. 7 p.m., time now for Talk Out of School with Lainey Hampson. Up in the morning and out to school. Teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study him hard and hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. And the guy behind you won't leave you alone. Ring, ring goes the bell. Hello, everyone. My name is Laney Hameson. Welcome to our show, Talk Out of School on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM and WBAI.org, where we focus on issues affecting public schools here in New York City, the state level, and nationally. Our show is also available for download as a podcast. My guest this week is Mark West, author of a provocative new report from UNESCO entitled EdTech Tragedy, Educational Technologies and School Closures in the Time of COVID-19, which describes in detail the tremendous failings of EdTech during the pandemic and challenges the claim that its increased use will improve opportunities for students in the future, either in the U.S. or worldwide. But first, some local news. Mayor Adams and Chancellor Banks were widely criticized for their lack of advanced planning and consistent communication after an intense rainfall hit New York City a week ago Friday, which flooded many streets and subway lines and many schools as well. Apparently to make up for the lack of preparation and the decision not to close schools, the mayor held a hardly organized press conference midday on Friday, where he announced a shelter in place order for schools, but no one ever told principals about this order many of whom had already asked parents to pick up their children midday for safety's sake, especially in those schools in which many classrooms and lunchrooms had flooded. While the chancellor initially claimed that only 150 schools were flooded, actually more than 350 schools needed cleanup crews over the weekend. To his credit, at a press conference on Tuesday, Chancellor Banks admitted to a lack of adequate planning and mixed messages and pledged to do better next time. There clearly will be a next time, unfortunately, given the frequency of intense weather events that have resulted from climate change. Whether it be the dangerous air pollution caused by fires in Canada last June or the heat wave in early September, the mayor's office and the Department of Education have been caught flat-footed in anticipating and dealing with these challenges and need to do a far better job in preparing and making our schools and our city as a whole more resilient to the effects of climate change. Last week, the co-host of Talk Out of School, Daniel Alisea, did a terrific job in interviewing a climate expert on what should be done better from now on. He also featured the voices of parents and teachers who described the risky chaos that they and their children had experienced as a result of the storm. We can be thankful that no one was seriously injured. We may not be so lucky next time. If you didn't hear the live version of Talk Out of School on WBAI last Sunday, I recommend that you download it as a podcast. My guest this week is Mark West, an education specialist at UNESCO and the author of a new UNESCO report called EdTech Tragedy, question mark, educational technologies and school closures in the time of COVID-19. Mark, welcome to Talk Out of School. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. So that's a very provocative title off the bat. Why do you call the use of EdTech during COVID a tragedy? It is. We recognize it's a it's a provocative title, um, and it it comes from our research that when uh, when the pandemic started, like many people, we didn't have a clear understanding of sort of how long this might be. Uh, people forget, but sort of early projections are that you know school closures wouldn't happen. There were a couple school closures in in China, then Japan ordered its schools to be closed, and you know people were often watching from afar, thinking that's not coming here. Um, and we wanted to just understand what uh, what happened when the schools closed and all of education moved uh, into technology mediums. 
we watched this process unfold first over months, then over years, uh, and stretched all the way in some contexts, all the way into 2023, actually, uh, the school closures. So as we did this research, we kept seeing uh, certain trends again and again, things like unintended consequences, undesirable results, despite a lot of effort and energy uh, to achieve better results. Uh, we saw a deterioration of uh, the status quo, but we also noticed things like a lot of sort of grand ambitions to have a sort of paradigm shift with education. Uh, some people have even called this a sort of hubris that was uh, marked the very beginning of the pandemic, that this uh, digital transformation would uh, would finally occur, that had long been sort of promised and, you know, the moment was was now. Um, and that those are all the kind of core ingredients of a of a tragedy in a classical sense. And tragedies uh, begin with ambition and even hubris, and then they lead to unintended and undesirable consequences. But what tragedies always have, and this is even from Aristotle's definition of what characterizes a tragedy, are lessons, even revelation. And we wanted to really highlight the lessons that we think uh, the education community can take from this, you know, tumultuous experience. Um, and that's what the report really uh, focuses on. It looks at what happened, but also, you know, so what? Why does this matter? And what are the implications going forward? What can we learn from this? That's what a, that's what a classical tragedy is, is it, uh, it, it teaches a lesson both to the audience and to the protagonists. Many of us were protagonists in this uh, in this uh, global experience. Uh, some of us were more of an audience, but there's something to be learned for, from everybody. And that's where the, the title uh, derives from. So all this promise and um, hubris, as you call it, emerged despite the fact that the promises and predictions made over the years that EdTech would revolutionize education for the better had not come to pass. Um, the first section of the book is called The Hope of Tech Salvation. And you describe a book published in 2008, for example, called Disrupting Class, How Innovation Will Change the Way the World Learns, which claimed that by 2019, half of primary and secondary school classes would be displaced by online options that will be one third of today's costs and the courses will be much better. You also describe several other initiatives in which the promise of EdTech did not bear out. There was the laptop experiment and something called hole-in-the-wall learning. Can you describe what these two initiatives included in the results? Yeah, absolutely. Also, I just wanted to, to say that it goes well beyond uh, the 1990s, the early 2000s. Um, the book includes a, a quote. I'll, I'll just give the quote. It said, it is possible to teach every branch of human knowledge with this new technology. Our school system will be completely changed with inside of 10 years. Want to know who said that? Thomas Edison in 1910 <laughs> with the invention of the motion picture machine. So there have been a lot of obituaries written for the schools and coming together and the technology will, you know, completely revolutionize and transform education. Uh, so this has moved in, in fits and starts from well before the digital era. Radio even was met with some of these. There's a superb book by a woman named Audrey Waters called uh, uh, Learning Technologies. Um, and it uh, traces this sort of long history of, of this sort of expectation that this disruption is just around the corner. Audrey's been uh, on the show, by the way. Uh, oh, has she? Okay, fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah, really admired that book. So on the point about the hole in the wall experiment, I mean, this is, uh, th this was an experience by uh, an Indian academic, um, who, basically was uh, working, if I'm not mistaken, it was in, in New Delhi or outside of New Delhi, but put a, literally put a, a computer in a hole in the wall at the, at the border of the university and kind of the community, and then just wanted to sort of see what happened. In later iterations of this experiment, the computers were connected to the internet. Again, this is sort of very early days of the internet but then started making all sorts of very uh, bold claims that uh, children were, you know, learning fantastic things. They were learning languages. They were learning about cells. They were learning 
you know, mathematics and all sorts of, you know, fantastic things just by coming up to this computer and using them. That narrative was very strong. Uh, the person behind this won a, won a, a major award from the best TED Talk of the year. Um, and this sort of idea corresponded with the rise of sort of TED Talks. People assume that these things have always been around. They haven't. You know, TED the TED Talks are fairly new. It it told this very compelling narrative about the ingenuity of children and that, you know, with little uh, guidance from adults and, and little sort of structure that people could make these amazing educational gains. And it was, you know, it was good news. People wanted to hear that. There, You know, illiteracy is still a major problem in the world. At that time, it was even more of a problem. You know, this is something that you know, can help fix this. It's uh, It sounded a lot like a panacea and was sort of sold as a panacea. A number of people got very excited about this, started investing and putting these holes in the wall in different places, not only in India, but outside in other countries. You know, just a sort of computer idea was it was open to the public. But uh, when you dig a little deeper and go into sort of uh, independent studies that were done about these hole-in-the-wall experiments, it turns out that sort of very deep and sustained learning was not, in fact, happening. That, uh, you know, the children who were coming to these hole-in-the-wall places were often of a higher caste. They were already privileged in some ways. Boys were using them much more than girls. And a lot of the problems that we know exist with technology were reflected uh, at these hole-in-the-wall uh, kiosks. So this is helps to frame the discussion that comes in the book because... It talks about how compelling, you know, this idea that technology, if we just get it in the hands of learners, you know, magic's going to happen. Right. There's a laptop experiment which dropped laptops in several different what South American countries. There was a laptop experiment in the in the state of Maine, which provided every student, I think, middle school and high school students with laptops. And I think the results of those experiments were almost uniformly disappointing. That's true. I mean, and this followed up with with what you're mentioning, the one laptop per child uh, initiative, which uh, which was you know, became a, a major thing in a number of countries. And, you know, the name was very descriptive. The idea was to get uh, one laptop in the hands of every every child. And the idea was that, you know, fantastic learning opportunities would be opened and that great learning would, uh, would happen. And that started this sort of, you know, parachuting in technology and crossing your fingers and hoping that good things are going to happen. And as much as we might all wish that to be true, it has just shown time and time again that that, uh, that that does not, in fact, yield very strong results. And I think that this book, it sort of has come out at this moment of uh, excitement about AI technologies. And once again, we're hearing this uh, discourse that, you know, you just set, uh, set a, a learner loose with uh, ChatGPT and, you know, all these great learning outcomes are just right around the corner. Uh, we're going to have AI uh, tutors and other things. Not to say that there can't be some amazing potentials from these things. Anybody saying otherwise is is not paying attention. But uh, to expect these uh, sort of miracles and that we can just walk away, uh, the whole history of educational technology suggests otherwise. So then the pandemic occurred and the Brookings Institution was one of many organizations to call the pandemic a leapfrog moment and announced it's now more important than ever to invest in innovations such as education technology and leapfrog progress, both during the pandemic and beyond. Um, our former governor here in New York, Andrew Cuomo, echoed this belief and said that um, during the depths of the pandemic, he would work with the Gates Foundation and former Google CEO Eric Schmidt to transform education for the better through ed tech tools delivered remotely to, quote, develop a blueprint to reimagine education in the new normal. I quote, the old mo model of everybody goes and sits in the classroom and the teacher's in front of the classroom and teaches that class. And you do that all across the city, all across the state, all these buildings, all these physical classrooms. Why? With all the technology you have. So he was one of many, many people uh, and leaders and organizations to echo this, um, this view. But what you look at more um, intensively in the book is what the result of the widespread adoption of virtual learning was. You write, 
But as the online remote learning and school closures stretched on, it became increasingly apparent that technology-dependent remote learning in response to school closures was disrupting family dynamics, amplifying existing educational disparities, causing emotional and physical distress, lowering academic achievement, narrowing aims and possibilities for education, and damaging the environment. Let's go through these one by one. First of all, how did it disrupt family dynamics? Well, in profound ways. I mean, the the message uh, was that, you know, for many people, it was this formal academic learning just has to continue. You know, schools have closed and everybody needs to continue making progress in their curricular uh, subjects. So that caused this sort of great scramble where people were very afraid that their, you know, children might uh, might fall behind. Um, I'm talking to you from uh, the very center of of Paris, you know, one of the richest cities in Europe, Europe being one of the, you know, richer regions of the world. I mean, I can say that numerous, many of my colleagues were not equipped with enough devices for their children to be following education online. So the numbers got really skewed, meaning lots of people show up as being connected um, when you do sort of surveys and other things, or households may be connected. But that may mean that there's one mobile phone in the in the household. There's a single laptop in the household. It doesn't mean that, say, three children, four children, five children in other parts of the world had access to these technologies to follow distant remote uh, learning. The exclusion was just extraordinary, not to mention we're not even counting now the students that are known to be unconnected, which is literally hundreds of millions of learners who have no access to digital connectivity. So the decision to pivot from a place-based education where people were, you know, walking to school, traveling to a local school, to requiring some sort of digital access to, to, to gain access to educational opportunities left huge numbers of people behind. But it also caused enormous stress inside of families where people were doing all sorts of things to secure devices during the midst of a pandemic. Um, there were accounts in the United States of different school districts sort of jockeying in front of other school districts to place, you know, major orders of Chromebooks or, uh, you know, various types of tablet computers and other things. So it, it caused this sort of race, and that race uh, unfolded at the level of school districts, at the level of states, but even inside of, of families where they had to make difficult decisions about who was sort of learning. It also meant that, the you know, the family dynamics, I mean, here we are in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, I'm sure that many of your listeners have children at home. I mean, that was a, a strange thing to have students like trying to engage with education for hours at a time in front of a computer. That's hard enough. But using that computer in the house, using that computer in a place where you know, people often needed to have the sound on or needed to be making noise. We look at things. I know that, uh, again, I'm speaking to you from Paris, where apartments tend to be pretty small. I mean, in there was constantly a fight in my home about yeah. who was able to make noise uh, and where noise was coming from. Right. Um, we look at statistics about the, you know, Europe keeps statistics about the number of children with a, with a room of their own. And, you know, that ranges in some of the some countries in, in the north of Europe to, you know, up to maybe 70 percent of children have the room of their own to well below 50 percent in parts of southern Europe. You know, people don't have their own sort of space. And so we just sort of wanted to go through how those family dynamics changed often in adverse ways uh, during this sort of uh, pandemic. But again, the, the the message was very strongly need to continue making academic progression and it's you know it's on you to figure that out how how you get the devices how you log on to the classroom and all of this in some places there was some assistance i mean there were projects to disseminate hardware there were some projects to disseminate ensure the students have the appropriate software but then they needed connectivity on top of that that's sim cards that's broadband internet sometimes even fiber running to the houses that stuff doesn't happen overnight and the exclusion was, and we use the word staggering. That was uh, the New York Times picked up on that word. And it was, the exclusion was, was staggering. You went from a system where huge numbers of people who, who had access to formal education 
lost that access uh, when the pivot was made to a fully uh, digital reliance. You also in the book talk about, you know, how it led to thousands or hundreds of thousands of, of women leaving the workforce. Because one thing that um, younger students especially needed was the support at home to be able to log on and sustain their schooling through the Internet. Um, but one of the most important things, I think, about the lessons that you reveal um, in the book, even when connected technology was available, the technology reliant modes of learning tended to result in low student engagement and poor achievement, and especially for disadvantaged students. And even when disadvantaged students had full access to the internet and the technological tools being used. And I think that that's one of the more important lessons of, of COVID because so many people who've even reported on your book or who've tried to figure out what we might do better in the future have said the solution is to make sure that every kid has equal access to technology. And though, of course, as a low board that bar, that's important. That's not the full lesson of what we learned. Is that right? That's right. That's that that I don't think that can be the only takeaway. I think what you were mentioning earlier about, you know, women having to leave the workforce in, in huge numbers. I mean, we saw that in, in a number of different uh, countries that kept good data. If you talk to people, you know, what is the purpose of education? People will very quickly get into sort of academic curricular learning. It's progress in, in reading and math. It's uh, learning the basics of science. It's uh, learning certain things about the arts. I mean, these are all extremely important. But we often forget that there are very important latent functions of education. That includes socialization. Uh, education is a place where young people start to interact with people outside of their family, adults who are not their family members. Uh, people who come from backgrounds who are, you know, probably substantially different than the background uh, that they come from. These are all important functions of education. Acculturation is an important function. Um, just, you know, learning how to live in a in a in a in a community of of diverse people is a is a function of education. And those things just were sort of didn't make that transition across the digital line, if I may. And what we saw, these digital applications and other things were just very focused on, you know, unit one, module one, this kind of, you know, this this long march. And so I think that perhaps one benefit, if I may, of the sort of pandemic experience is I don't think people are taking those latent functions so much for granted at this uh, at this time, you know, that there it's it's schooling has, serves many purposes. Uh, some of those purposes are easily, you know, sort of measured through tests and other metrics, but others are are, are less easy uh, to measure. But we know that they're we know that they're very important. Um, so there's a whole new raft of education programs that are screening, assessing, and trying to ameliorate and 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 um, strengthen social emotional learning. So it's not as though the understanding of the importance of those soft skills or the importance of being able to learn how to get along with others, communicate, find satisfaction in your life is not um, able to be then used by ed tech companies to try to strengthen their bottom line. I think I think that's right. I mean, there are there's certainly a socialization aspect to, you know, digital forms of socialization and other things. But as, as we saw during the pandemic, that especially for younger children, I mean, that experience was often one that was did not feel very sort of uh, enriching, very educative. It wasn't uh, and very, not very good for development. You know it, too, because when the students have come back to school, there have been all sorts of accounts of how far behind they are, mm -hmm. not just in sort of academic curricular learning, but also developmentally, there's been a lot of qualitative accounts that, you know, my my students who are in sixth grade are not, you know, not at the level of maturity or at the level that I'm accustomed to students being at in in uh, in sixth grade. And part of this is is through this, uh, you know, through this pandemic experience. I don't think this is, you know, can't be sort of leveled at 
EdTech across the board. There were lockdowns. There was a lot of other, you know, things happening. This was not happening in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely that uh, those experiences, so many students and teachers themselves said that these that mode and those models of learning that grew up around the pandemic, people found them to be sort of very problematic and often began to just disengage. Um, I wanted to say, too, it's not it, it wasn't people forget the very beginning of the pandemic. Many people thought that students might spend more time on education and learning because everything else was shut down. And a number of, uh, of of companies were noting that their workers were like working longer hours. In some instances, were, were showing more productivity, not less. So there was, in the very beginning, some hope that maybe that would happen with regards to education. Absolutely did not happen. The data that uh, we uh, put in the book shows that, you know, the amount of time that students spent learning. And again, these are people who have all the infrastructure around them to do this remote digital learning. I mean, it fell off a cliff. Um, you know, very rarely were people spending, uh, you know, often less than half the amount of time on education that they had been spending. But in many countries, I mean, it went way worse than that, where people were spending, you know, one to two hours a, a day on education versus, you know, when they had been in a pre-pandemic experience that had been, you know, multiple hours or the better part of the day uh, had been spent on educational activities. Right. You describe how students uh, became less engaged and worldwide there were huge numbers of students that actually dropped out of school, many never to return. And that one study showed that the global progress to end child labor had stalled and that 8.4 million more children had entered the workforce compared to 2016, which probably was not just due to virtual learning, but was due to economic pressures as well. But that is one sign of, you know, a drop off that may, we may never, those, those kids may never recover from. That, that's exactly right. And that's also what happens in the vacuum when people don't have the ability to, to get, uh, you know, connected devices. If you see, you know, students or young people are sitting around idle. I mean, they're often put to, they're often put to work. It's something that's productive. It helps the, helps the family in certain ways. And so from, you know, many families interpreted when their children were going to school, that was considered to be, you know, very useful. But when, those schools shut down and there was no possibility of connecting to online education or any type of remote education because there was no connectivity, because there were no devices, because uh, the family couldn't afford it, because the government wasn't able to provision it, whatever the reasons, those children were often uh, were often put to work. You know, once children are put to work, the chances of them leaving work and coming back into edu- formal education are very low. Um, we, we know that. Uh, so yes, a very unfortunate thing. And that was, uh, one of the, one of the first times that rates, global rates of child labor had increased, uh, was, was during this, this, uh, this, this period of time. So I think, you know, in the book, we talk about sort of taking existing inequalities, which there are many in education and layering technology on top of that only widens those inequalities. That we've seen that again and again. And what the the promise, if I may, and it, it doesn't mean that it can't happen, is that how can technologies sort of close some of these divides rather than just always widen them and forever widen them? And that is a very interesting, you know, question and something that the education community I think really needs to ask itself is how do we ensure that these technologies are not just widening gaps that are already gaping in, in, in many, many places? I mean, uh, unsustainable levels of, of, of inequality that exist with educational opportunities. But we, we saw during the pandemic that layering technology onto that just made those inequalities worse, supercharged them is uh, one of the words we use in the book. So one of the other results of, of the increased use of, of technology and virtual learning was that it enabled new forms of surveillance and control with students feeling like they could no longer express their views honestly. According to one survey, a majority of students in K-12 schools in the U.S. agreed with the following statement, quote, I do not share my true thoughts or ideas because I know what I do online is being monitored. Can you talk about that a little bit? 
Absolutely. I mean, this is what happens in a world of, of video surveillance and the world of distant remote learning was one of everything was often recorded. I was, I think, done for good intentions often. It was students could, who maybe missed the lesson, could review the lesson. Um, it was moved online on the platforms where it would be easy to access. But what's not stated there is that meant that there were, you know, classrooms that were n not well protected at all, where anybody who had this particular URL or access to a, you know, a shared drive of some sort, you know, w could literally sort of enter classrooms of, you know, of, of schools all over the world and see recordings of these classrooms. Um, you know, that was true at universities, but also true of, uh, of schools, even at the elementary, at the lower secondary level. You know, these are these are minors um, and, and young people who often share ideas that are, you know, that are <laughs> maybe not well considered. I, I would be terrified to see videos of what I said in, uh, you know, literature, humanities, even science classes in, uh, in, in ninth grade and 10th grade. I'm very glad I grew up at a time when that was not all recorded and tagged to my name. Um, it wasn't possible at that time. It is today. And during the pandemic, we saw that model. It was a lot of technology that was had been designed for a corporate workspace was applied to technology. So people have boxes, their name, they're tagged, uh, they're identified. You know, is that necessary in a digital learning environment? That's a different sort of question. And so we saw this sort of these tools appropriated for, you know, kind of business and corporate purposes applied to education. And I think that's where a lot of the problems originated. And I hope that going forward, we see more tools that are sort of built, purpose built for education. And again, purpose built for beyond that public education, where it's not just about increasing the sort of bottom line of technology companies and other, other things where we know that there are also issues that the book uh, really recounts. So along with just the use of video and recording video, there are all sorts of ed tech monitoring programs that have been developed and, and, and used like GoGuardian that filter and identify students who use certain words. You also write about the rise of automatic proctoring uh, programs, remote proctoring programs in which many students were unfairly charged with cheating. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. I mean, we saw a lot of really you know, things very problematic. Let's talk about the remote proctoring. I mean, remote proctoring for, for listeners who may not know, I mean, remote proctoring is a way to uh, give an assessment and try to ensure the integrity of that assessment. So basically to prevent cheating. But what that looks like in practice is a sort of Orwellian nightmare of surveillance where it's, you need to show uh, your surroundings uh, to either an AI proctor or a human proctor uh, you need to share all sorts of different pieces of identification. You know, there's all sorts of uh, things that are that are being monitored. And then it's the the terms and regulations that govern sort of how that data is used. Um, there was very little legislation about how those, you know, how that video capture could be used after the fact. Um, and it really freaked people out to be sort of being watched like that. And it meant that it, if if students moved off camera, that would be flagged as a violation. There are, all, of course, all sorts of legitimate reasons why you might need to move off camera during a multiple hour examination to go to the bathroom, to grab a glass of water, to get something to eat, to ensure that your kid is OK, who just fell, you know, next to you, that life there was, was happening. Who's, who asked for permission to be able to vomit during an yeah. exam because she That's was afraid right. that that would be too suspicious. The book even talks about a woman who gave labor during uh, one of these exams because there was only one shot at the exam. It sounds crazy when you read about it, but when you read the details about it, you know, she had one shot at this exam, uh, for, you know, that year and would have to wait another year to do it. And uh, anyway, stayed and finished the exam while she had, had entered labor. I mean, so, yes, people were really, you know, were afraid of, wrongful accusations of cheating. And the, the real tricky thing about these remote proctoring uh, services, and look, you talk to the services and they say, there's gotta be a way, you know, 
that it can't be a free-for-all. There has to be a way to ensure the integrity of examinations. Understand all of that. But the services don't actually say what cheating is. They give a dashboard to a teacher or an administrator, and they say these are some moments or incidences that could Suspicious. be exactly so so there was a sort of suspicion meter we looked a lot at the back end of these tools and it was like there would be a suspicion score and then it was up to a teacher to review these sort of moments and indeed now you're watching a video of some you know might be an eighth grade student at home alone or a university student you know in their room and indeed their eye kind of seems to move to a book. You know, is that cheating? Is that grounds for disqualification? You know, and different teachers would sometimes just say, you know, click, you fail, that's it, that was that was cheating. You know, there was little chance for sort of recourse and other things. So this sort of model that grew up around trying to give examinations uh, remotely had all sorts of sort of problems with privacy, with surveillance, with control. And it's not to say that, I mean, a school is a controlled environment and a surveilled environment. When you give a in-person test, there's also a lot of surveillance that's happening in that situation, but it's more culturally agreed. We all come and meet at this place or outside of our home and accusations. It's done by teachers or other people who yes, know exactly. the students who exactly. are hired by yeah, the it's district not, it's not an AI. The supervision of a school board and it's not remotely done by a private company with no knowledge or connection with those real that's people. right that's right and the students who were flagged up for you know some of this cheat i mean there's their stories were really i i mean i mean there was a some of the well-publicized ones came from very privileged students there was a group of medical students at dartmouth university who were accused of of cheating and they had all sorts of problems to sort of clear their names and you know went through this bureaucratic odyssey so once you're you know once a high suspicion score appears next to your name you know you're tainted whether or not you know you you did anything wrong at all i think that even having these sort of suspicion scores in education is is a sure sign of a problem i mean i worked as a teacher I didn't get a file that said, you know, this student is suspicious or anything else. Of course, people have reputations, but these sort of, you know, quant a sort of quantification of, of the, you know, what a suspicion score is and other things is, is very problematic. The book looks at a number of different examples, even outside of education, of how this type of technology has been used and I would say misused in various contexts to catch people who are doing things like cheating on their taxes and other things but the the way that the systems assign a, sus a suspicion score uh when you look at the individual variables are very uh you know very problematic another thing i wanted to talk about was emotion recognition technology uh got really moving with the with the pandemic so that's technology that you turn your video camera on and then there's a sort of ai that is supposedly reading your emotional state so if and it would show up on for teachers as a dashboard that you know 60 percent of your class appears to be engaged 30 percent are totally not engaged you know this percentage seems to be content this percentage seems to be discontent and that sounds very good as a sales pitch i mean why not teachers uh you know want to be able to read the room it was hard to read the room in a digital environment but it turns out that this emotional recognition technology is based on all sorts of very problematic and very thin sort of assumptions about what facial expressions convey different emotions. Um, I know there's a radio broadcast, people can't see us speaking, but I don't think I'm smiling right now. It might even be perceived as frowning, but that doesn't mean that I'm not engaged or I'm upset or anything else. And this, of course, varies culture to culture, family to family, individual to individual. And so, you know, we we once again saw all these kind of, uh, you know, technology fixes for problems that went well beyond technology. And that, I think, is the, you know, what we call out in the book is the real problem is this this ideology of technological solutionism. I got a problem. How can technology fix it cheaply, quickly? you know, without a whole lot of effort. And there's always somebody who's willing to sell you a solution. 
Um, and we saw that again and again with education during the pandemic. So one of the other problems with this, and we're very engaged with this issue because we do work on privacy, is that more and more data being collected from students and outsourced into private hands um, was being misused. And instead of being used to assess student progress and learning, it was increasingly used for commercial purposes, for marketing purposes, for displaying ads to students and or breached with the education sector now the number one target for hackers and ransomware. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. I mean, the models of data capture that we have today are data capture to make a profit. And you make a profit by influencing people's behavior and selling advertising and everything else. So when sort of education became fully reliant on these uh, digital spaces that already existed, digital platforms, digital services that already existed, they were set up for for data capture for profitable purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's, that was, you know, how these services are offered for free. It's, uh, it, it was the model. So unsurprising that student data was harvested in, in, you know, enormous quantities and used for all sorts of purposes that went well beyond, uh, education. Uh, showing people advertising was, was one, but also, you know, getting people into different, you know, platforms and digital ecosystems is an, is another one. So, that was, I think, very, very problematic that people should be able to exercise their right to education. At UNESCO, we think of education as it is a human right. It's not a sort of consumer product that is bought and sold. It's something that everybody has a right to. And your right to education should not be contingent on, you know, watching advertisements every, every, uh, whatever it is, every 10 minutes, you know, when, when, when uh, on a, on a platform, uh, hosting videos or other things. So, you know, the, the absurdity of that is sometimes seen, I think, if you project it into a school setting. Imagine the backlash that there would be if the teacher just stopped in 10 minute intervals. And a, like a, a advertisement for makeup uh, played on uh, on on the projector in a school setting. I mean, there would be at least in a lot of communities I know, you know, real outrage about that type of thing. But that's what was happening in uh, in these digital environments. Asking people for all of this sort of personal information was often uploaded by schools into these digital platforms. This includes everything from you know behavioral issues that students have had, family issues immigration status i mean all sorts of personal things disability health information exactly on and on we're uploaded into semi-secure unsecure sort of systems hackers family income systems yes and that that data really surprised us about how common the education sector is is hacked and vulnerable to cyber attacks and a lot of that came from during the pandemic when a lot of inexperienced users underfunded institutions were moving all of this teaching and learning online it created all sorts of vulnerabilities and those vulnerabilities were were exploited it's it was also not often publicized meaning uh, hackers would get hold of data of a you know high school a, a small university a university system and they would you know make a ransom demand and in many instances, those ransom demands, the, the hackers knew the rate to set it at, too, where they were likely to get paid. And a lot of times those payments were made very quietly. There's no press release about that. Nobody wants that to get out. It led to the state of California actually passed a law saying that if a educational institution that receives public money is indeed hacked, they have to report it. I mean, that was sort of the first you know, step to make this reporting where we even get a sense of the scale of these problems. And the scale was really daunting, you know, where the there's more hacks on education than sort of every other sector combined. Um, so that, and it's that's still happening. I mean, even after COVID, the number of hacks is going up. We've had many of them in New York City, um, where millions of students have been implicated in these in these breaches, our state law, which passed in 2014 at the same time as as we banned in Bloom, requires public disclosure of all breaches. 
Um, and yet that still isn't happening in New York City and elsewhere, but that was part of our state law. So one of the problems is that the state laws are not enforced even where they exist, um, which are supposed to strengthen privacy, supposed to strengthen data security, supposed to make more transparency around data collection and sharing and has, has not worked as of yet. So this is an ongoing issue. Um, one of the other things that you talk about in the book is the use of algorithms, which is, I think, incredibly disturbing, where critical decision-making for students is being made more and more not by human beings, but by unreliable mathematical formulas. You have two striking examples in the book, one concerning the international IB program, the other tests taken by British students to get into colleges and universities. Can you describe these events? Absolutely. Um, you know, these were a case where the people were wondering how to assign grades. You know, you had people finishing, uh, finishing a term and how would, how would grades be assigned? And once again, a lot of people said, you know, technology will be the answer and that there's no way to sort of administer the tests or the other assessments that we would, you know, historically use to give, uh, give grades. So we're just going to use a formula. Uh, we're going to create an equation. And uh, let's take the example of uh, of the UK. In the UK, there were a number of different sort of variables that went into that. But an important variable was the past performance of the school. So meaning in this school, these are, you know, this percentage of students traditionally perform at this level. And this percentage of students, per, you know, traditionally performs at this level and so forth. And that became a very important variable in assigning the sort of grades. So that meant that you, you know, the weight was very strongly to just the past performance of, you know, other people at your school. But that completely leaves out the possibility that, you know, you may be having a great cohort of students moving through that school, you know, some exceptional teachers or some exceptional, you know, groups of students, you know, that were a, a huge disadvantage if you were coming from a school where people had been performing historically very poorly. You were also at a disadvantage if you were an underachieving student going to a school that had historically very high levels of achievement. So that's just and that's what algorithms do is they take the past and they sort of replicate it into the future. And that's what was happening with this grading system. Algorithms sort of do that again and again. They take patterns from the past and are able to sort of detect various, you know, similarities in, in those, uh, in those practices or experiences. And then they're able to sort of project them into the, into the future. And so that was what, uh, that's what happened in these, these different experiences that are recounted in the book. And there was, I think what's sort of interesting was just the backlash to that. Um, it was very vocal, very strong. I mean, people, felt that their sort of fair shot education, the grades that students get, especially at secondary school, I mean, they really matter for people's future opportunities. Right. And people were incensed that they hadn't had a sort of fair shot. It's not to say that all of our examinations in use today are perfect or not flawed or not biased, but people found the ability to take a standardized test a lot more fair than just, uh, you know, an, 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 an algorithm in the background making these uh, decisions, you know, on, on their behalf. And so we saw a lot of signs and protesters in these places saying, you know, bring back the sort of the, the teacher assessments and, you know, that those are the those are the assessments that we demand that we would like. You know, I think this was a really an important kind of moment and experiment, if you will. Uh, and politically in these different environments, you know, people backed away from them. These things were, you know, went by labels of a, of a mutant algorithm and, you know, other things and were sort of quickly, uh, disowned by, uh, by decision makers. I think that, uh, it, it was, a, it was a rare case of sort of people saying, you know, I don't want this sort of automated decision making to, to be happening. Um, it's also and an example of how, um, inequities and inequalities are amplified through the use of these automatic decisions because essentially yeah. what it's saying is if you are a student at a low performing school or an underfunded school or a school that enrolls a lot of disadvantaged students your performance on the test is going to be automatically downgraded because you go to that school 
That's exactly that's exactly right. It's uh, it's a replication of of inequality, um, a perpetuation of it. I think that yeah, that that's what these systems often uh, often do. I mean, we're seeing that now with the AI systems, with the different AI models. I mean, they they replicate uh, biases that we had in the past when people have done experiments on these large language models. I mean, again, and they, these are highly sophisticated teams trying to sort of knock this bias out. But it's it still creeps in there all the time about, you know, assumptions about gender, assumptions about class, uh, you know, all of these sort of things. It's using a huge corpus from the past. And education is supposed to be, you know, regardless of somebody's political beliefs or particular ideologies, most people understand education to be a place where people should get a, a fair shot. You know, that that is the place where opportunities should be somewhat equal, more or less equal. People tend to agree with that. These systems, that's just not what is happening. That's not an equal shot. That's just, you know, that's just mirroring what has happened in uh, in the past. So I, I think that that's a particularly interesting section of the book. And uh, I think there are a lot of lessons to, to, to be derived from that. And yet, despite all these negative effects that you describe in the book, the enthusiasm for ed tech and virtual learning has only grown with an increase in investment, marketing, and the use of these programs in schools across the country and the world. Here in New York City, despite all the, uh, the negative impact of online learning, the Department of Education is expanding virtual learning in all high schools, as well as the use of artificial intelligence bots as teaching assistants. Why do you think that is happening in your view, despite all the negative evidence against it? It's a great question. I think our our book is a is a, is an invitation for people to begin to interrogate some of that direction where we're moving. We often talk about you know that the the digital transformation of education is uh, is off course. It's moving in a direction which is not a sort of a humanistic uh, direction. I don't think that you know nobody's calling for you know we need to turn our backs backs on these technologies or you know become become luddites. It's uh, it's not a matter of that. It's about ensuring that we are steering this digital transformation in directions that are good for students, good for teachers, uh, you know, good for us as sort of societies. Um, and that I think, uh, yes, I think our course is still in go moving in a problematic direction. And it is remarkable to me how short our, our memories are, you know, that here we have this, you know, sometimes two, three year experience where everybody was fed up with ed tech. It was, you know, this experience was not good for many people yet. It was just a case of, you know, many people, the lesson to be pulled away from this was, there wasn't enough technology. The technology just needed to be a little bit newer and better. You know, um, it wasn't, you know, there are some cases it wasn't implemented right. But, you know, there's very few calls to sort of back away from that. But let me tell you where there are calls to back away from it. Some of the wealthiest uh, schools, often private schools, in centers of technology. Uh, again, I'm talking to you from Paris. And in Paris, some of the most expensive private schools market their limited use of technology because that's something that will come and students will get that outside of there. But here at the school, we're not going to be using that very often. We're going to be building the sort of socio-emotional skills of students, interpersonal skills and so forth. You see that in the New York cities, the San Francisco's, the Bangalore, you know, all over the world. That is often how some of the most prestigious schools are marketed. And I think we're entering this sort of, uh, scenario where it's sort of ed tech for the underprivileged and sort of schools and teacher-based education for the very privileged. And that's a frightening proposition because education is where we learn to become human. And it's very odd to me that we would outsource that very important enterprise to machines and to algorithms and to AI models. That is something we have all had experiences with a great human teacher and that, you know, the human touch of school has has meant a lot for, for all of us. And so moving into a future where that is, you know, denied to underprivileged, uh, underprivileged students, I think we'll just continue to see these uh, growing inequalities. But again, the title of the book is a bit of a, of an invitation to re-see and revisit you know, what lessons we want to derive from this. It is called an EdTech tragedy because we hope that people will take uh, lessons from this experience. And we have a lot of recommendations in the book 
about how to move forward in new directions uh, with technologies. And one thing I wanted to say is that it is remarkable how when you cross the digital line, everything is sort of for-profit commercial. That's not the case in many public schools, but somehow when we enter into these digital environments, it is a case of, you know, everything is sort of understood as a consumer service. Um, you know, it's, a, it's education for me. And how do we ensure a sort of more of a kind of public and common good in digital spaces? That's a very uh, interesting question. I think it's a great place to start with education. You know, what might educational apps look like uh, that are purpose-built for public education? Um, and we're seeing some exciting examples where some ministries of education are indeed getting very serious about, you know, building excellent quality um, digital learning content and services that support the important work that happens in schools. Thank you so much, Mark West, for being with us today on Talk Out of School and for your excellent report and EdTech Tragedy. I'll put the link to it in the resource section of WBAI and our podcast. And I hope this book is shared widely and used as a guidepost and a warning against the expansion of virtual learning and the outsourcing of instruction to ed tech apps and programs. Thank you again. A pleasure speaking with you. Thanks very much for having us. This is Laini Hameson, host of Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM Pacifica Radio. Our show Talk Out of School is available as a podcast if you missed the live version or want to recommend it to a friend. Also, please consider becoming a member of WBAI or as a special supporter of this show, Talk Out of School, by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. There's no other show on the air that deeply delves into the issues affecting our schools like this one. You can also contribute online at WBAI.org. WBAI really needs the support of listeners like you to keep going as one of the only non-commercial, purely membership-supported radio stations in New York City that doesn't run any ads. We will be back soon with another episode of Talk Out of School. Until then, be careful, be safe, and thanks so much for listening. Up in the morning and out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule Greetings, listeners. This is Dr. Kamal Kokai. WBAI needs to feel your love. Since the 1960s, you've heard members of your community share their passion and enrich your lives and the lives of those around you. Health, science, the arts, news, it's all here at WBAI. So nurture the station that nurtures you. Become a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 a month. You can make a difference and continue to feel the energy and passion of all the producers that are trying to give you the best. Go to give to WBAI.org. That's give the number to WBAI.org. Blessings. What do you call a doctor who integrates Western and Eastern medical protocols and achieves the highest health for their patients? What do you call a doctor who believes in and uses the body's natural wisdom as a component of their daily medical practice to great success? What do you call a doctor who made it through the entire pandemic without losing one patient? Well, around here, we call him Dr. Kamal Kokai. Luckily, on October 10th, from 7 to 10 p.m., Dr. Kokai will be leading a practical online workshop on boosting the body's natural defenses against any virus it may encounter. He'll be sharing the latest in medical advances in protecting oneself from microbiological illnesses. Feeling like your immune system and health need a booster? The time for action is now. The time to sign up is now while space is still available. Registration is just $125. Register
register now to join the exclusive webinar by visiting HealingHealthServices.com and filling out the form. Hey, BAI lover. Imagine a BAI PR team that every week would place articles in the left media about BAI or a team that creates an each one reach one promo campaign to increase our membership or a team that reaches out for grants and major donors. We can do it, but we need a real infusion of people power, a grassroots volunteer effort. A key person in all of this would be a volunteer coordinator. So this is a call for volunteer coordinator. If you can volunteer 10 to 20 hours a week, have a vision, can recruit volunteers, can communicate effectively, and want to expand BAI's reach, then call at 212-209-2870 to apply for volunteer coordinator. Call 209-2870 or email at volunteers at wbai.org. Thanks so much. Building Bridges, your community and labor report. From your workplace to your neighborhood, listen to the show that brings it all together. Building Bridges, your community and labor report, produced by Mimi Rosenberg.